Hey everyone, a quick note before we start today's episode, I want to point you to our brand new website at guiltgracepod.com for all things guilt, grace, gratitude, all of our podcasts, their categories by type, by episode, by season, by author, by topics, by all those good things. So everything guilt, grace, gratitude podcast you can find at guiltgracepod.com. Dot com, as well as our brand new confessional podcast network, which will be housed at confessionalpods.com. We have our inaugural sets of podcasts who have joined us, and we have more who are coming on board pretty soon. And you can also find the confessional podcast network on anywhere good podcasts are found. If you guys can help us in any way financially, go to guiltgracepod.com to give and donate. We have a lot of big plans for 2023 and beyond. and We would love for you to partner and support and build this bridge to confessional reform theology with us. Now, let's get on to this episode. The dust in the air is probably not thinking. It's probably not feeling. Okay. But if it were thinking, and if it were feeling, it's probably not in control of its thoughts or feelings because the sand itself is just blowing in the wind. There's forces that are, in a sense, behind the sand, making it do what it does. Hmm. And so if all that we are is built up out of these more fundamental, mindless actors, then it's sort of hard to see how, A, we have agency, B, how we actually have that intrinsic value, um, see how there could actually be a self, like a first person self, not just third person sand, mm-hmm. but the first person self that you witness in your own perspective. Welcome to the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast featuring Peter Bell and Nick Fulweiler. This is a show about Christian doctrine for everyone from the historic reform tradition delivered by two friends in an unscripted dialogue. Join us as we discuss how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Hello, everyone. Yet once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast sponsored by Lagos Bible Software, where we bridge the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. And today we're on an apologetic seasonal episode, answering the question, who are you really? And we're, our guest today is Josh Rasmussen. He is written on this question, this topic, and and uh, he's going to really help us with this deep question, deep uh, philosophical and maybe theological question that we have um, with this. Who are we? And so we'll jump here into this episode here in a moment. I'll let Peter further introduce him. But first, remind you guys about our show notes. You'll find some links and information. Uh, link to IVP, as long as as well as some other information about how to how to find Josh and his works, as well as a link to find uh, how to find a close reformed or confessional church near your area, and just basic information on how to how to find myself, Nick or Peter or both of us uh, on the show and communicate with us through Twitter, Instagram. You can find these uh, conversations via video on YouTube. You can email us at guiltgracepod at gmail.com. And then uh, just more basic information, housekeeping stuff, and of course our amazing bridge builder sponsors like Logos Bible Software. You you hear more information from. So let's jump into this this episode. Who are you really? And I'll let Peter further introduce Josh Rasmussen today. Yeah, we got Dr. Josh Rasmussen uh, is a professor, associate professor, 
of philosophy at Azusa Pacific University. If you know my alma mater, we're bitter rivals. So Biola and Azusa are bitter rivals, but we'll we'll leave that for another day. He's the author of How Reason Can Lead to God, Defending the Correspondence Theory of Truth, and The Bridge of Reason, co-authored Necessary Existence, and Is God the Best Explanation of Things? A dialogue and a co-editor of a new theist perspective a response to new atheists. It's a pleasure having you on. Thank you. It's really great to be with you. Appreciate it. Of course, yeah. So it's what's it like? I know you went to you went to Biola after your undergrad, and now you're teaching it at our at our bitterest rivals that we used to call like pagans. In, yeah, in that's it, right? College. Yeah. So I have a little bit of blood from both schools, I guess. Um, so it's great. I I like both schools, and and uh, I appreciate <laughs> both. And I'm internally contradictory, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's great. So. But maybe to further introduce um, yourself to our listeners who may not know you, who you are, maybe provide a brief little bi- uh, bio of yourself, your background, and, and what you do. Okay. So most important thing is I like mint chocolate chip ice cream, Briars. Wow. Okay. And uh, that's... You and my wife would get along really well. Yeah. Good. And after that, <laughs> the second most important thing is that I'm a person. Um, and I have that in common with you, I believe. That's right. This yep. is the subject of, of my latest inquiry, the subject of what we're going to be talking about. Yep. And it's related to my work as a philosopher, because uh, one of the things that I'm just very passionate about is just trying to understand things um, as, as far as I can. Mm-hmm. I, I just get very curious, like Nick was telling me before the mm-hmm. show about how he'll be driving somewhere just sort of wondering about something, about his mind or about the world or something. So that's exactly how I am. And ever since I was a kid, I would be just very curious and once I discover there's a profession, you could you mm. could do this for a living to try to get insights about things. Um, there's just no turning back. So mm. my area of work is kind of focused on first existence. So kind of my, my first uh, set of publications were on whether there's a kind of element of existence that has a necessity to it. It can't be broken or fall apart or anything. It can't even fail to be a kind of necessary existence. And then that related to some work about the foundations of, of everything, of all of, all of reality. <laughs> and then actually that work has led to my most recent project on consciousness and on persons, which we'll be talking about today, because one of the questions that I've been thinking about is how is our existence related to fundamental existence? You know, how, how could we even come to exist at all? Um, how, how can reality give rise to beings like us who can think and feel have a conversation like this. Um, so that that's a bit about who I am and what I'm interested in. So those are like kind of small questions to ask yourself. Just small ones, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just who am I? What am I doing here? Yeah, so my, my goal, I always have like big goals, um, you know, and then I feel like, hey, let's just go for it. And I tease my students sometimes because every once in a while, I will see a group of students outside a classroom. They all think the door is locked. And every once in a while, it's not locked, but they believe uh-huh. it's locked because uh-huh. somebody else believes it's locked. And then uh, I just yeah. tease them about that. Like groupthink, yeah. Absolutely. So I think that one of the things I want to try to understand is like, um, if everybody's kind of going this way and they say, hey, you can't answer this question, that's too mm-hmm. big. Well, let me just go try. And if I fail trying, then maybe I've learned something in the process. Mm. That's awesome. Maybe I'll find out the door was locked. Maybe I'll find <laughs> out, hey, that door wasn't locked. Hey, guys, come over here. That's right. Yeah, it happens sometimes. That's true. Cool. I I had a, a really random memory just now tying it to consciousness is uh, talking about your conscience, and mm-hmm. uh, which I'm sure we'll dip into. When I was a little kid, 
my favorite movie as a really, really little kid, Disney movie, Pinocchio. Huh. And I uh, watched it over and over. If if you know little kids, they'll watch movies endlessly over and over again. If you know like, me, I'll like watch a, a movie endlessly. Oh, you and my I'm, son, I'm Leo. The, the Rookie. I've, I watched The Rookie, <clears throat> that like um, early 2000s Disney flick, like 100 times. Wow. You and my son, Leo, that's three now, would get along very well. Watching we, we do get along pretty well. I, I don't know if <laughs> you, you do, noticed. actually. You do. <laughs> yeah. uh, but anyway, with Jiminy Cricket, I was like, oh, that's an interesting aspect of, you know, talking about your conscience, be your guide. And he's a little cricket guy living in his heart and in this puppet. And so, yeah, I, just, I, I don't know why I thought of that, but <laughs> maybe maybe uh, this is kind of linking to some early childhood yeah. questions <laughs> you didn't actually know this from. josh but you're you're our psychologist right now we're just going yes. through our early yeah, well, i'm wondering you know maybe it's related to you know deep childhood questions you have about <laughs> the nature of the conscience you know should yeah. you be trusting your own conscience oh, what is that right. what is that is it particles in your brain you know what was that voice in your <laughs> yeah. head well there's a reason why they made <laughs> jiminy cricket who he was and and if you watch the new pinocchio movie oh that's right there's a new um, live action not one. not the there's two new ones oh, yeah. um, that either way, there's one where he's like living literally in his where his heart is anyway. Mm-hmm. So anyway, going, <laughs> let's get back to you. Not me. Uh, what first got you researching the nature of consciousness and it's being or uh, sorry. And it's beginning. Yeah. So you, you got me thinking about beings inside of myself. <laughs> yeah. And actually in the book, I, I do talk about this sort of problem about how you can, demarcate yourself yeah out of a cloud of particles and there are some ways of answering the question how do you demarcate yourself out of a, a cloud of particles where it leads to this problem of too many persons uh, because there's too many particles that function like a person and so you get little persons inside of big persons you know i mean like if you can survive the loss of some fingernails or something or some oh, atoms yeah. Yeah, yeah it's like well you're shrinking down to a, cl- a particle cloud that was already there but wasn't a person before, but is a person now, maybe, right? So anyway, you're, you're mm-hmm. having me think about that. Uh, we can come back <laughs> to that sort of thing. But what got me interested in, in this topic was, in a way, I've always kind of been interested in kind of the nature of who we are. I mean, it's just kind of one of the, the philosophical um, topics. But um, more recently, people have been emailing me these questions about mm-hmm. whether fundamental reality would have a kind of uh, consciousness to it. And they wanted to know, you know, what I thought about that. And when I was in graduate school, I took a number of different courses on the nature of the mind. Um, some people listening to this may know of uh, Jaguan Kim. He's a philosopher of mind, very well known in the field for his work. Uh, he's got a book called Physicalism or Something Near Enough. And he articulates uh, a theory of consciousness in terms of, uh, in physicalist terms. But there's a reason why the title of the book is or something near enough because hmm. there are aspects of consciousness um, that he wants to give an account of, but that account is not going to be exhausted uh, in his terms by just third person uh, physics. And so I took a course with him and that was very fascinating. I took a qu- couple courses uh, from JP Moreland from mm-hmm. Biola. <clears throat> oh yeah. He's a big guy uh, at, uh, at Biola. Yeah. And, uh, and then also from, um, Alvin Plantinga took a, uh, took a oh, yeah. course with him. Yep. Course with a philosopher of mine named Robert Hanna. Another course in philosophy of mine with Michael Tooley. Um, that was more on perception. And so I kind of just kept taking these courses 
on the mind and on consciousness, I began um, to then contribute to the field some of my own ideas. And this was kind of in the background of my work because my early work was more on fundamental existence. But in the background, I've been thinking about the mind. And really, I think probably what caused me to decide, you know, I'm going to write a book on this, was when I was on a podcast, uh, I think it was Capturing Christianity, and we were talking about consciousness. And what I discovered from the Q&A from the audience and from the conversation was that there's a very big divide or gulf between maybe popular uh, impressions about the field of the mind or, or consciousness, the kinds of the ways people are framing the questions, the the impressions people have in the popular sphere is so much different than the impressions that I get in the field, working with philosophers, going to conferences, attending talks, giving talks of my own, contributing to the field. And, and I feel like there's been a lot of progress um, in the field, but then there's also a lot of kind of new things going on in relation to some of the empirical sciences. And so it just kind of opened it up and I was like, I need to, to revisit this topic, study this in more depth and, um, and write about it. So I would say that's, that's kind of what opened it up for me, just seeing that gap between the kind of popular discussions and a lot of developments I feel like that are going on behind the scenes that are not really well understood. And I want to give readers sort of tools that they can navigate these questions for themselves um, and, and understand things by their own lights. Hmm. Yeah. So that's leads me into the, to this question. Cause this, this book we're talking about now, who are you really, which is your forthcoming one that'll come out <clears throat> about a month and a half after this, 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 uh, this interview comes out, but it's, I mean, I'm going to call it what it is. It's a, it's a tour de force. It's the best one. Cause it's, one of the only ones I've read on the mind. So it's it's one of the best, which is or the best. Um <laughs> the best of that list. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But it really, it really is really good because it, it goes into the because it's introspective and, and we've talked about that a little bit. And we'll kind of we'll dig into this more yeah. into the nature of humanity and first person beings. And you've already talked about third person and first person. Maybe you want to describe that and the problem of defining how that might have come about like how do you know that you are a first person how do you know that you have these thoughts mm -hmm. how do you know these things so to begin with what what is so unique about a human being what like what is first person why like why can why can humans have first person things versus what's a third person thing compared to basically anything else you see in this world that's not a human yeah so i think of a first person thing as something that depends on somebody's perspective and sometimes we sort of forget that we view the world from a perspective, uh, especially when people maybe talk about um, the facts, you know, like it's a fact that the earth is is round, you know, it's not flat like a pancake, that's a fact. Well, you know, where is that fact exactly? Hmm. Uh, how do you know that fact? Um, I would think of that fact as third person in the sense that um, it's truth or it's obtaining is in itself tied down to a first person perspective. In other words, um, the earth would be, would have its shape independently of whether or not you or I are aware of the earth. Now this opens up other questions about whether maybe in God's mind, the earth uh, has its shape grounded in a wider consciousness, but we can mm -hmm. sort of set that aside for now and just point out something I think that people take for granted, which is that they view the world from a perspective. Like, so right now, people who are um, listening to this you are able to hear sounds and there's there's you 
experiencing those sounds. And those experiences of those sounds are in a perspective. There, there, there's you experiencing them from your own point of view. And that sort of point of view is not something that would be uh, necessarily included in a purely third person description of, of brains, if that makes sense. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. So maybe to, to dig into that um, a, a little bit further. So what you're, what you're saying, maybe to, to ground it for people. Yeah. So first person is I like, I'm the one thinking these things versus third person is either something's like I'm ob- observing something else or something else that's happening to me versus I'm the one who's doing it. Is that maybe, is that like kind of help? Yeah. First person relative to me would be that it's my thoughts, my feelings, my perspective um, versus something that would be able to exist apart from my perspective uh, or anybody's Mm -hmm. perspective just exists out there. And, um, and there is, there are questions here, about how the first person, a third person even go together. Um, But sort of minimally, Start with your own point of view. Think about how things seem to you from your perspective. And then there's just this further question about how reality can include anything that has a first-person perspective. How, how do perspectives exist um, in the first place? So, yeah, I I told you that I'm kind of weird, right? So I have uh, I've thought <laughs> about this before, actually. And um, so... Do you think, is it kind of like this, um, our self-awareness is where kind of objective and subjective reality meets Mm. and where Mm -hmm. we have a, you know, from, from our soul within a measurable space, which we live in, which is just time, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? So is that sound completely weird? (laughs) I like it, but so Nick, uh, forgive me for being a philosopher. What do you mean by soul here in this context? Ooh, good. Uh, soul would be our um, the created awareness from God that's mm-hmm. given to us that makes us more than just skin and bones and cells, or not even cells because those are living too, but just just body mass. Like it's actual the spark that's in us that God made. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. And, and there is a, when you come, when we talk about self-awareness, I feel like we're viewing objective reality, which Mm -hmm. is more of whether you like it or not, whether you agree with it or not, it is what it is. And it's Mm -hmm. God's nature. Um, and also our perspective, which is subjective. Yeah. So, and then also we live in space and time as matter, right? So we live in a measurable space, which God lives outside of time and space, but we live inside creation, which is time and space and even space is measurable. So it's almost like in time, I mean, even time is measurable. I meant, mm-hmm. so yeah, uh, I don't know if I was, uh, I think I was about to say, Josh, he talks about this in his book because he talks really? about your perspective on yeah. reality, whether you know what your perspective it is, whether you can rely on your perspective. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So Nick, I, I really like how you you put that because uh, you're talking about how the objective and the subjective could kind of come together yeah. uh, in, in your own awareness. Like your awareness is is subjective because it's an aspect of you, a subject, um, but it can grab onto things that are external to you. 
Um, and in that sense, they're objective, um, at least in the sense that they don't depend on your consciousness or your perspective to exist. Now, it's tricky because there's a bigger question about how anything like us can exist at all. And part of my project is to see if we can understand our existence in terms of something that can kind of unify all of us, so all of our consciousness, as well as unify the world itself. And so there's a weird way in which I'm going to kind of come back to your thought about how the objective and the subjective can sort of come together in a self. Um, because I end up sort of arguing for something similar in my book mm -hmm. that subjectivity and objectivity, even of the external world, mm -hmm. come together in a fundamental self. Um, and and by the way, the term soul, I, I try not to use that word, mm -hmm. um, except... I was about to say, you use I've, it like maybe once or twice that I can I, think of. I, yeah, I do use it, but it's kind of like, here's something else that I've defined mm -hmm. in terms of yourself. If you want to use the term soul to um, apply to that, I think that's going to fit with what you're talking about, Nick, um, because the idea is that the self is something that can animate your body. There's more to your body. Uh, there's more to you than just the molecules in motion. There's something else, you know, as you put it, like a spark. Well, what is that spark? I end up making the argument that there's a self that's actually very familiar mm -hmm. that you can know it through self-awareness, a kind of direct acquaintance uh, with yourself. And it's it's actually... It's almost like so familiar that it's hard to talk about it because either somebody wants a, a definition maybe in terms of uh, the brain or something and we could talk about challenges with that definition or they're going to want something that's going to fill in more information. But it's like one of those things that's very familiar. Like you wake up aware of yourself, like here I am. You can have dreams. You can be aware of yourself uh, in your dreams. And and But I do think that there is that kind of self and that that kind of provides an anchor between the subjective and, and the objective. That's cool. Yeah. And somebody physically that's missing body parts or deformed or mm -hmm. was born without a body, they're still they're, has a self. Yeah. They're just as human as we are. That has all our body parts. Um, Which actually, and, again, Josh talks about in his book that like you can cut off a fingernail, you can cut off yeah. a finger, cut off an arm, Your but leg. you still have the self. So it must not yep. be totally located in that one place. So like, where is it? And yeah. Or what account. is it? You know, yeah, maybe it's not it? yeah. the kind of thing that has a location. I mean, on, on Twitter, uh, I was entering this conversation because I, I had this quote from an author about, um, well, th this is actually from, from what you guys were talking about from this book on Sap the Sapiens book. Mm -hmm. And I had this quote out of there about mm -hmm. trying to locate the soul mm -hmm. <laughs> in a biological system. Uh -huh. So I just put, I, I shared that on Twitter to yeah. kind of get some reactions. And somebody asked this question like, well, you know, what were, what were the scientists expecting to find if they did find the soul? <laughs> yeah. And then somebody said, you know, maybe it'd be like a blue glob or something like this. <laughs> right. And I thought, well, I thought it would be green, right? Why blue? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Because we have these assumptions, right, about how what we're going to be finding. But, you know, mm -hmm. maybe what you are isn't even the kind of thing that has a, a color fundamentally mm -hmm. or even a shape. Um, and so we try to sort of locate the soul inside the body. But maybe that's because we're so accustomed to thinking of things in terms of shape and space. Yeah. But that, you know, if you have a dream and you have in your dream a kind of spatial structure where you can look over here to the side and over 
and start to move in your dream and you say, well, that's not real space, but it has sort of this feeling of location in the dream. But are you in the dream as a spatial hmm. image? It's like, well, no, you're the one having the dream. You're like the backdrop animating the dream, right? And I think there's something like that with respect to our bodies. It's like our bodies represent us in a spatial way. But that doesn't mean that we are fundamentally ourselves spatial. I mean, in fact, if we're in the image of God, and if God is not fundamentally spatial, as Nick was, was describing God as transcending time mm-hmm. and, and space as well, you know, perhaps if we are in the image of God, that could imply that um, our nature is also transcendent to at least space. Although, I mean, this opens up another controversy. I do think there's a sense in which um, we can experience time um, in connection with a relationship with a dynamic um, w- with God, you know, but even then we're not, God's not confined by the temporal mm-hmm. order in that sense. And so maybe there's a way in which we're not, we aren't either. You know, in a, in a deep way, like in a most fundamental way, people in the NDE experiences, near-death experiences, oh, yeah. sometimes talk about this feeling that um, they weren't really in time, you know, and I'm not sure what they mean by that, hmm. but maybe they're pointing to something that's like more fundamental than time itself and space mm-hmm. itself. And maybe and, and maybe our nature is more deeply rooted um, than these other concepts. Hmm. It's almost like the most original source of existence is outside of time. Yeah. Because that was there first. And then God. Well, created. it wasn't even there first. Cause if you say there was there first, then you're assuming time. Yeah. So it's like, there how do you go. actually relate? How do you actually relate this divine being to time? If you can't relate mm-hmm. them to time, cause then that time bounds him. Yeah, exactly. It was already there already is a temporal notion, exactly. right? It's, yep. it's hard to even talk about these things. I mean, just very, very briefly, uh, my preferred model would be that time, flows out of change and events mm-hmm. and so the source of change the source of events is um, not temporal um, prior it, this is not a temporal priority but it's an explanatory priority um, explanatorily prior to the first event mm. the source is not temporal but then with that first event there's time mm. and that's that's why there is time and you know may, maybe there's something similar about our own existence that most fundamentally we exist um prior to spatial categories perhaps even temporal categories it sounds before next question i I don't know if you've read i mean actually i i'm assuming you've read them it sounds a hair like augustine's kind of doctrine of creation because he like he doesn't like the time element of creation he's like i yeah he's like i can't imagine anything besides instantaneous whenever it happened instantaneous creation because i can't i can't bind god to this time thing so i have to not even put him before but like he has to speak it and not, mm-hmm. i'm not saying he's before or after he's like he's a, like he has to he has to say something for it to yeah. do something um but i think he's like he's he's kind of wrestling with the with the time question too yeah yeah definitely there's similarities there for sure and time is how we make sense of things because we if you think about it the past is just always memory. It's just stuff that's happened. We can't go physically back to it. We can't manifest the past. We are always just presently present in the now. Like you can't just escape the present. And then the future is just uh, fantasizing about the future, thinking about it. And of course, biblically, there's promises and prophecies and what's to happen for hope that's going to happen in the future. And we know that's going to happen because God doesn't lie and it's going to happen. But 
we are always living in time and space that God created just as of right now. Yeah, right I now. 100% agree with that. There's something about the now that's very special and it's different from the past and the future. Um, and I mean, every one of these topics, divine creation, time, uh, whether the now is privileged, every single one opens up all this controversy. And I'm actually just noticing that I like to be sort of as inclusive as I possibly can when making an argument. Hmm. Um, but here I'm kind of just putting my cards on the table. And, and, and I agree with you that, you know, I do think that there's something about the now, the present um, that's that's privileged or very special and it's distinct from the past and the future. Um, and, I, and I think there's even health benefits to, to that because sometimes I, I find that if I'm sort of living in the past or living in the future in my mind, I'm not being present, then I feel like I, I get scattered and just by the way, my new year's word for the year is to be, it's the word is appreciation. And the way that I'm practicing appreciation is by actually focusing on just like being present. And this is certainly related to the nature of consciousness and the nature of persons, because in the second part of the book, I talk about this question of identity mm -hmm. through time. How can you be the same person oh, yeah. from one moment to the next? Mm -hmm. And this is related to a puzzle, especially if you think that all there are are clouds of atoms, atoms and, and their arrangements. Um, because if all there are are atoms and their arrangements, there's this deep question about, well, what makes you the same person from moment to moment if atoms are, you know, you, you and I could be swapping our atoms uh, in principle and I could still exist over here. Maybe over time we swap all of our atoms. Maybe slowly my shape starts to look more like your shape and your shape starts to look like my shape <laughs> then do i become you do you become me it seems like uh well it seems like if i do have self-awareness it seems like that self-awareness gives me access to what i call first person data first person data is data that i can access from my perspective directly immediately like that i'm thinking that i'm feeling um, a certain way and 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 that there's me that i'm real mm -hmm. and that i continue to be real and I think that first person data can give you a clue about <clears throat> your relationship to the body. In particular, I, I make the argument, it's not an easy argument, but I'm just going to point to it here, that in order for you to maintain your identity uh, from moment to moment in a sea of changing atoms moving in and out, um, you aren't actually grounded in any particular set of atoms. In fact, I make the argument that your identity is prior mm -hmm. to atoms. Um, your, your existence and identity is rooted in something else uh, other than atoms. And this can also help to explain how you can make a difference in the world hmm. because there's this problem in the um, literature about agency. How can you be an agent in the world? How can you make a decision? Hey, I'm gonna go cross the street right now. I'm gonna go get some milk. Like how can you do something in your mind that actually makes a difference in the physical world if everything's already completely determined by atoms or particles that are outside your control. And when I say determined, I don't mean to imply that everything in the world has to be deterministic, even if the world proceeds by chance, okay, and things aren't completely deterministic. Still, if the fundamental actors of reality are mindless atoms or, or quantum fields or what, what, however you want to describe it, it's not you, something else besides you if that's true, if it's something else pulling the strings on everything else, then you become a puppet of 
this sort of mindless noise, mm-hmm. in which case you don't actually have control over anything. And and some people follow the argument that way. They say the foundation of reality is mindless noise. Mm-hmm. And therefore you don't have a control over everything, anything at all. Mm-hmm. But I, I would flip it. I would say we actually have first person data that we can access, including the data of forming thoughts and intentions. And then we can see, hey, there's a correlation, a connection between forming an intention to raise my hand or to count to 15 in my mind, and then subsequent actions that correspond with that intention. And I would make the argument, the best explanation of that to me is that we actually do have some power to make a difference, that we can form an intention and actually make a difference. And so therefore, um, if that's right, then fundamental reality isn't just mindless noise pulling all the strings. Mm-hmm. Hey, all, this is Peter, one of the co-hosts of the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast with a word from one of our sponsors, our title sponsor at Logos Bible Software. Have you gotten your free book of the month from Logos yet? Join tens of thousands of believers who build their library with a free new digital theological book each and every month. Then read it on the free Logos Bible study app. Logos is the easiest to use, most powerful Bible study tool on the planet. You heard that right, on the planet. It works on mobile, the web, and even has an amazing app for your laptop. I myself use the mobile app every night to read from the Hebrew, the Greek, and a few other resources. I love it. I've used other apps, and this is the best one on the market. It really truly is. And if you want to go even deeper, you can choose from a vast selection of the top books for in-depth Bible study. There's also step-by-step videos to help you learn how to study the Bible like a pro. So get your free book of the month today. Go to logos.com slash guilt grace and get started with Logos today. We have this link in our show notes. So just open up our podcast, find our show notes, click this link, and you can get started with us with Logos Bible Software. Westminster Seminary, California's upcoming Seminary for a Day is Friday, March 10th, 2023. Westminster's rigorous master's degrees in biblical and theological studies, historical theology, and divinity all emphasize a mastery of the original biblical languages, being Hebrew and Greek, a small student-to-professor ratio of about 12 to 1, face-to-face education, and you're really going to get to know your classmates and professors, and you'll sit under seasoned pastor scholars who know what ministry life is like. I really can't overemphasize how much of a blessing my Westminster education was. The ability to comfortably read and work in the original languages for sermon prep, draw from the depths of confessionally reformed theology, all with a laser focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ from Genesis to Revelation, have profoundly shaped my approach to ministry. I really do hope you'll consider coming to Westminster's upcoming Seminary for a Day on Friday, March 10th, 2023. You'll have the opportunity to sit in a few classes, grab lunch with some of the professors, participate in a Q&A with those professors, walk the campus grounds, check out the gorgeous and cheap apartments, in short, get a snapshot of seminary life. Westminster offers a $400 travel grant to ease the expense of visiting, so go to www.wscal.edu for more information, or go to our show notes, find the link, press it, and sign up for yourself. Again, Westminster Seminary California's next seminary for a day 
It's Friday, March 10th, 2023. I hope you come experience seminary life for yourself like I did in March of 2019. And one day, join me in the ranks of our alumni. I love it. I got I got a list of <laughs> random questions. Peter's going to get mad at me. Going, How about I ask some of the questions I'm supposed to ask, and then if we have time, I'm going to... And if the audience is uh, getting a little confused here, don't worry, guys. We're not going totally Gnostic on you. Um, we're still... We're, we're taking this to a certain point, too. We're going to... Um, we still know that the, the body, the created being uh is very important too you know even we're, we're talking about something like slightly different about the body because we're talking yeah, about the like how, exactly yeah how how do i know that i'm different than something else versus exactly. myself yeah exactly. and i'm yeah and i just want to emphasize what you're saying like yeah so i'm yeah. not saying the body's not important yeah um it's very important there's a deep connection mm -hmm. between me it's and just my a body different conversation yeah yeah yeah, yeah. absolutely i just want to make sure people hurt you never know. There's people listening and they're like, oh, they're getting all Gnostic. That's the Gnostic crazy. Heresy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. just throwing that out there. So uh, I got a question here. So the first part of your book, uh, I believe that the Who Are You Really book, uh, you discuss the nature of human beings and our senses, feelings, body. There we go. Value. One point in theme you keep coming back to is the fact that humans know, inherently know, that we do have value. And I guess we could define what value means. And then we feel things. Um, we feel things, not even just physically, but internally um, in our soul and mentally things in, in, in our heart, because we are first person beings. Um, so you can describe what first person is. You talked about that a little bit earlier. Uh, third person. I know with video games, some people guys have played video <laughs> games. That I, that's how I remember is like first person video games. Like Wolfenstein 3D, or there you or, go, or, yep. or, or, from, yeah, or, from yourself, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, Versus third uh, person, you see the thing that you're playing, yeah, yeah. And then third person is more like Mario, <laughs> yep. More, and then, uh, so, uh, beings do not have the ability to perceive, perceive things about themselves. On the surface, the answer is obvious, but as we dive further, it gets more complex. So, Maybe you can describe more of the first person, third person uh, experience. Yeah, that's good. So the way that I think about it, that term first person being in the book, sometimes I use the term first person self. It's that reality that I think that you can be aware of when you're self-aware and you're aware of it from your first person perspective. Uh, yeah, I liked your reference to Wolfenstein 3D because, you know, in these first person shooter <laughs> games. Your view the same age as me, by the way, because you yeah. know what game I'm talking about. I, yeah, that's that's a fun one. <laughs> I'm over yeah, double seven is, is my my era. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you're viewing the world from your first person perspective there, which is different than viewing it sort of from a third person sort of top down perspective. And I think that um you you are real. I mean, this this is one of these things that it's hard to really appreciate the significance of this. Like you you may not have ever actually seen your brain okay very few people have seen their their own brains they've seen other maybe pictures of other people's brains and i mean look i believe that i have a brain but my belief that i have a brain is not based on any kind of direct conscious awareness that i'm aware of i'm not i'm not aware of axons firing or anything like this so my belief in my brain is based on an inference that um, explains reports of other people's brains 
And then I witness myself acting in similar ways to other people. So I think, well, probably I have a brain. brain. Yeah. Yeah. So it seems like a good explanation of, of the behaviors that I'm, I'm witnessing. But I would say that I do have a conscious awareness of myself thinking, myself feeling, myself wondering if I have a brain. Okay. I'm not actually wondering that, but you know, I could. <laughs> and, and so what this highlights to me is this concept of uh, a first person self, which is that self that you're aware of through kind of direct first person introspective awareness. And I take a lot of time in the book to, to make a case for this tool of introspection um, because it's pretty powerful in, in terms of what it can imply. Um, because if it can imply that there are realities that you can access directly and get information about, and those realities don't seem to fit so well into a, just a purely spatial characterization of a brain structure, then this tells us something about the kind of world we live in, which is our world includes, in addition to atoms and molecules, in space, something else, something that you can witness more, um, more immediately. And so um, you mentioned value. What I think is that, and make a case for this, that you can actually be aware also of, of your own value. There's evidence that people are aware of their value by how they respond if you treat them um, as if they have no value. So if you like go online and you start, you know, telling people that you just think they're pretty stupid, they have no value, they're they're everything they do is just idiotic. You know, they might not like that. <laughs> and the fact that they might not like that might be a clue <laughs> that they, wh whether they have a philosophy that supports us or not, um, I think there's a behavior that kind of indicates hmm. that we have a kind of acquaintance with our own self-worth. Uh, I, th I think there's a kind of immediacy hmm. of there's something significant about me. And, 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 and so I, I try to articulate this carefully and make some distinctions in the book, but basically it comes down to using that tool of introspection to witness yourself and your own worth um, directly and immediately. And then if you can do that, this opens up all sorts of interesting, not only implications, but then questions about how a being like you that has value could exist. Because, I mean, just to go back to what I was talking about before, if the reality is mindless noise at the base, just particles in motion or quantum fields, or, you know, I, I think it's helpful for me to like, think about like sand mm -hmm. because it's like a visual metaphor. It's like the dust in the air is probably not thinking. It's probably not feeling. Okay. But if it were thinking and if it were feeling, it's probably not in control of its thoughts or feelings because the sand itself is just blowing in the wind. There's forces that are in a sense behind the sand, making it do what it does. And so if all that we are is built up out of these more fundamental mindless actors, then it's sort of hard to see how, A, we have agency, B, how we actually have that intrinsic value, um, C, how there could actually be a self, like a first person self, not just third person sand, mm -hmm. but the first person self that you witness in your own perspective. Um, there's all sorts of interesting puzzles and questions that I think arise precisely out of what I call the mindlessness frame of reality, where mm -hmm. the base of reality is mindless, mindless noise, you could say, or particles or whatever it is. But if it says you flip that frame around, and if you have at the base of reality, some kind of mentality that changes the game, it gives, it gives us different resources to explain how there could be beings like us who are in the image of the fundamental consciousness um, that can act that can have powers to make a difference that can also have value intrinsic value because we're in the in the image and the likeness or in the nature 
of that um, base reality. If it itself is a first person self, mm-hmm. if it itself has consciousness, okay, then it has value. And then we can make the argument that it could have resources to produce um, beings after its own kind, if that makes sense. Hmm. Yeah, so yeah. It's, it's saying that <clears throat> just because something exists doesn't mean that it's alive because or alive sounds, in the same way that we are. Yeah. Yeah. That, that sounds really obvious, but think of like, you were talking about dust. We could talk about um, just innate, innate objects. They, yeah. they don't even know they're there. They, they, they're just there floating and they're just in space and time, but they're part of God's creation, but they, they have no self-awareness. They're not alive at all. Yeah. But they're Maybe. only there. They only exist because whether we see them or not, they exist. Yeah, you know, as you could say, um, e- even images in your own mind don't themselves have self-awareness. Like if you have an image of a, a person in your mind and you're dreaming, mm-hmm. that image isn't itself alive. It's rather a content of consciousness of someone who is alive. Well, mm-hmm. that's the matrix. It's related to this because <laughs> Now, th- this is this is going farther than is necessary for the purposes of my book, but I've been um, my, my mind has been transitioning to this view that the actual material world is itself um, contents of a more fundamental uh, mind. Hmm. Um, and this seems to fit with my understanding of um, what a number of different uh, scientists are saying about the nature of the physical matter, like what is matter? But it also fits very well with a just an analysis or a kind of philosophical analysis that explains the data available. And the idea here is that there are things that are not themselves conscious. They're not themselves alive, like images in your mind. If you think of the number two, the number two in your mind is not conscious. It's not alive. Okay. But it still exists as a content of your mind. And so I would make the argument that the material world is actually that way too. It, it exists in the content of mentality, whether that be um, God's mind or um, our minds in, in, a, in a way that makes it so that there's a perspectival nature to matter. Um, there are other ways we could flesh this out, but perhaps a simple way to think about it is to imagine that there's this foundational substance that has the power of consciousness and it also has the power to produce images and spatial structures within its mind in the same way that we can produce images and thoughts and structures in in our own minds yeah so and what you said um i'm gonna combine a couple questions that i think it 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 works it works better with this um based off what you just said and because you've made a a couple things were first person third person consciousness non-conscious and and the thoughts and feelings and maybe you can flesh out for for our audience because you've said multiple times like okay how like how do you get from like a non uh, mindful material thing to a mindful material thing. Yeah. And I like that's, and we've like, we were both talking about a, a book that we've been reading um, the the sapiens book. And I, I mean, this has been a, a debate I'm sure with philosophers for forever. Um, so maybe if you can just describe to our audience, like what, what is that kind of tension on like, how can what you and I have that allows us to look in the world from our own perspective, how can that exist? If, that like, is it possible that it like that something that didn't have that created what we have, or does it require something else different? 
Yeah. So this takes us back to, uh, I call this a, a construction problem, but yeah. actually I think there are lots of different construction problems. So think again about just that mindless scatter of atoms. Um, and the question is, how can you take these mindless atoms and organize them into a conscious being who can think, feel, have intrinsic value, mm -hmm. um, can make a difference in the world, uh, can have a, a, to actually be a first person self, um, can persist through time and be the same self, even as its particles, the particles of its body are swapped and, and replaced out. And what I what I do in the book is I, I try to show how each of these different features of ourselves that we can sort of witness through introspective awareness, our ability to think, our ability to feel, or having that intrinsic value, each one of those creates a separate construction problem. And, and I make the argument that you need the right kind of materials. Like some materials just can never produce mm -hmm. a conscious being. Uh, you know, like you can never roll rocks uh, <laughs> against a wall and then produce mm -hmm. a first person self or a thought or a feeling. And, and I make the argument that that if you can understand what the nature of thoughts mm -hmm. are through introspection, then then you can start to see that there's a incongruence between the natures. It's mm -hmm. sort of like taking a bunch of numbers and then adding them up. Take all the prime numbers, add them up, and produce a prime minister. It's like, well, that's like a <laughs> you can't do yeah. that. It's the wrong the right numbers material. are the wrong yeah. material. Yeah. Yeah. You can't have an imaginary character in your mind and then roll it into a leaf, you know, and you can't take leaves and roll them into uh, a first person conscious being, you know? So um, I, I, I go through in detail. And in fact, actually I have a whole chapter on thoughts and I derive what I call the mindful thoughts theorem. It's a technical deduction using some first principles that I think you can access through awareness of your own thoughts and properties of your own thoughts. Thoughts are about things. Thoughts can be logically linked to other thoughts, like some thoughts entail other thoughts. And, um, and by reflecting on these these attributes of thoughts, I make the argument. And I'm not not going to go through it here, but I make the argument that um, um, that thoughts themselves have a nature that can't be derived out of mindless ingredients. And and I deduce a theorem that actually says that um, from these first principles. I think you can access through introspection. So basically what I'm saying is that there's all sorts of construction problems that are very difficult if you start with mindless uh, units of reality. But if you flip the frame, and th this is where it can get very mm -hmm. exciting because I have this picture of this airplane and if it's flying upside down and you see a blue ocean underneath and a blue sky you know, above or whatever, you might, you, you know, the, the, the ocean reflects the clouds in the sky. So you might think the ocean is the sky, you might look up, you might get a little confused about like which way is the right way to get the plane going. And I think you can explain a lot starting with mindless foundations, but I really do think that if you flip it and you actually have, no, it's the mind that's foundational hmm. and the mindless things, because I mean, this will sound a little bit weird, but your thoughts <laughs> are mindless. Okay. Mm -hmm. Your thoughts don't have a mind. So mm -hmm. your thoughts are mindless. They're produced by a mind, but they they're produced by a mind, but they themselves don't have a mind. Okay. So um, mental images, they have spatial contents in them. Those spatial contents are mindless, but they're produced by a mind that's capable of producing mental imagery. So if you flip it, the if you flip this around, so you've got the mind at the base, then all the mindless things can emerge from hmm. mind. And then this, I think, fits very well with uh, our experiences, um, as well as uh, empirical science. I'm not going to go into that now, but I weave some of that into the book. Mm -hmm. I'm citing some of the latest studies there. 
And and even there, I'm, I'm I try to be careful not to assume a particular interpretation of those studies because first, I'm I, it's not my field. I'm not a quantum field theorist, but I'm citing some of the quantum field theorists, and then I'm putting on my analysis hat, my philosopher's hat, and I'm taking what they're saying looks like a consensus of empirical data, and then I'm looking for a way of understanding that that makes sense of first person data as well. Mm, yeah. So before. For next question, this, this is my like the last the last two questions. It's, it's, it sounds like, and again, you said this in your book, and you're saying this now. It's if you start with a third person mindless material, you cannot like it's not capable of producing a first person mindful material. But if you start with a first person mindful material, you can produce both first person materials and third person so it it yes. it solves the question when you start when you start yes. from the, the top bottom you put that so well thank you for putting it that succinctly <laughs> that's exactly it that's exactly it. if you start with the mind first that gives you material that can produce both contents of consciousness as well as we can analyze third person aspects of reality um, in terms of the contents of consciousness that are produced yes absolutely yeah so it's 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 taking kind of the the and we're all materialists in some sense we're like we use them we we like them we we are materials in some in some sense yes but um it kind of it kind of flips the script on a purely materialist account of the mindless of the materialist yes yeah yeah Absolutely. Pure, uh, purely mindless material where that tends you i mean i won't say the scientific consensus but like if you're you're like the book we were reading was like well biologists can't find us it. like it's not that's because they they that's not their purpose is to find them it's if it's a if it's a material less thing how will material things find a material less thing exactly um, yeah like i was telling you before the show philosopher of science alexander rosenberg he makes the argument that yeah physics doesn't find thoughts yeah um you but know we, and so if you're a first person person you know you have thoughts that's it yeah find and, and so some some philosophers make the argument that therefore if the foundational reality is material, then there would be no thoughts. And then that's the conclusion that they accept, that there are no thoughts. But here it is. I, I like to just yeah, kind of flip exactly. that around and say, no, first person, you have access to thoughts. If that's true, if you do have thoughts, um, that looks like the fundamental reality is not mindless, but mindful. At least yeah. that, that gives us different resources. I think it yeah. can help us solve those problems. Yeah. Last thing I'll say, then I'll, I'll let I'll let Nick end it. But it was, it was just so helpful. The, at the beginning of your book, you talk about like some of the theories, like some of the different ways of accounting for like, oh, I have thoughts. So how do I account for the fact that I have thoughts if I assume mindless materials are the things that created me? And it, one of them, and like the only thing maybe I can think of, and, and we don't have to go too far into this, but um, is that you like everything I have is just a result of biological functions and, and synapses firing and atoms going off. And therefore, like the things that I'm thinking, I'm not actually thinking, but I like, but then how do I think about them? It's, it's, it's like, it's this continual cyclical thought process you go through where a lot of them say, well, they just don't exist. It's like, what you're thinking is not actually a thought. It's, it's, um, nobody's quite sure what it is. Yeah. Yeah. So they're different theories, you know, so some theories eliminate the thoughts, others reduce the thoughts to um, certain states of, of matter that are not accessible directly through introspection, you know? And so that that's where I make the argument that, well, if they're not accessible through introspection, um, then what is it that I am accessing through introspection? Yeah, um, exactly. and, and, you know, I take some time with this and, and I want to be careful here because yeah. 
there's there's a healthy debate going on. And yeah. and part of the debate is to work out the different concepts. And I don't want to kind of be overly triumphal in, in my yeah. own present analysis, but I do get very excited about this because it does look to me that the theorists who are going into this field um, in depth are really seeing mm-hmm. some troubling implications with a completely mindless first materialist mm-hmm. view. And there's a reason why there are so many different philosophers who are coming to the conclusion from the mindless first view that therefore you have no thoughts or therefore your thoughts are very different than you might think that they are from your first person awareness, or you don't have free will, or you don't have intrinsic value, or you don't have an enduring self. I mean, these are sort of common inferences. And I think this this is one of those points in the popular sphere. uh, You know, I I was mentioning at the beginning of, of our time together that in the popular sphere, there's certain impressions. And I think one of the impressions in the popular sphere is that there's not really that much of a problem explaining consciousness in terms of brains um, getting organized in a certain way. Uh, maybe we don't understand how it works. Maybe it's mysterious, but that's just the nature of the world. It's just mysterious, it just emerges somehow. I feel like that's kind of a sort of a mm-hmm. popular impression. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not say, suggesting that that impression doesn't track a worthy theory of uh, that philosophers are pursuing. It's just that my impression with the philosophers of mine also reading some um, scientists who are kind of tipping their their spoon <laughs> into the this field as well, but from a more empirical side, um, that they're they're more troubled by these construction problems through more analysis, and that's also been my own experience. Like I wasn't so troubled by them until I started taking all these courses and, and going deeper in the field, and 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 I can really appreciate the sort of trend to either eliminate thoughts and feelings or to somehow reduce or analyze them into um, something that they don't sort of seem to be from the first person perspective. Um, Because, you know, this sort of emergent idea that, well, what you just get sort of this new category of reality that just comes out of this Mm -hmm. other kind of reality, it is a little bit like ghosts coming out of rocks in a way, Mm -hmm. you know, or numbers turning into leaves. I Mm -hmm. mean, it's like, is that mysterious? First of all, why posit more mysteries than we need? You know, if we can have a theory that doesn't have those mysteries, now people say, well, maybe it has other mysteries. But this is where I make the argument that actually, if you pay attention to your own experiences, you can have knowledge of things that roll away certain mysteries. And you can have a a, um, a simpler theory that can explain more um, if you don't have those sort of mindless grains of, of, of reality coming first. Um, but one more note, if I, if I could just sort of add this, because I think some people wonder here at this point, how is the brain really related then to consciousness? You know, I'm, I'm spending a lot of time talking about how the brain doesn't give you the consciousness, at least not all by itself. Mm-hmm. But I don't want to give the wrong impression. And I want to even highlight something valuable that Nick was pointing to earlier, which was, you know, the value of your body, as well as of your brain. Um, in my book, I talk about this um, theory of the brain. I get this from a scientist named Kysik, who develops what he calls the control model of the brain, or he has a version of the control model of the brain. And what the brain does is it helps to facilitate, according to the control model, a certain kind of uh, experiential connection with our environment so that there's a systematic connection where if I open my eyes, I'll have certain experiences in relation to the environment. And the brain is facilitating that. 
Um, you could almost think of it like this computer right now that I'm connected to is helping to facilitate my experience of, of you um, through the screen. Okay. doesn't mean that you just are the pixels on the screen. It's like, no, no, there's something behind those pixels that's contributing to this. I was just saying to you that I loved what just happened here because I was just saying that without our, the computer connection functioning, I would have no access to you. And then you you would just go away. And then the computer stopped functioning and I had no access to you. <laughs> Crazy. But what's so interesting about this is that even while I didn't have the representation of you to interact with anymore, you didn't didn't actually go away. You were actually still existing, even though I couldn't access you. And I think this is a really good analogy for what happens when the brain um, completely is destroyed and we don't have access to the person anymore. It's not that the person goes away. Hmm. It's that the person can't access us anymore because the point of the brain is to give us access to each other in this environment. That's hmm. what the brain's doing. It's controlling our interactions in this environment. When the brain is gone, we can't access the person whose brain that belonged to in the same way or an analogous way to if this computer stops working and the screen goes <laughs> yeah. away and you can't see me anymore, you can't access me and I can't access you. I can't even say, hey, I'm still alive. There's life after, you know, the computer dies. I can't even tell you <laughs> yeah. that because I, unless I, you know, come back in through another computer, yeah. uh, I won't be able to give you the information of my existence. So I just wanted to say this because it's not that brains don't play a role. It's not that mm. you just exist and you just don't need a brain. No, you actually do need the brain. The brain is facilitating mm -hmm. the interactions uh, in this in this environment. It mediates maybe the first person to the environment that the first person is in. That's it. Yeah. I yeah. like it. Cool. Oh, Nick was. Uh... <laughs> All right. I had, to, I had to change rooms. Go do it. Like <laughs> my kid was crying. Yeah. And I mean, if I may, and I don't, this is just me thinking. So to bring it, kind of circle it back to a, a Christian uh, apology kind of thing, I'm hoping the audience can kind of see that in order to have us as self-aware first person aware even souls people that are living um for that to even intelligence for yeah. that to even exist we have to have a creator that is intelligent a, a god that actually created us i mean there has to be original intelligent source to do all this. It didn't, these the self-awareness didn't come out like create itself out of nowhere. It had to have been created by an intelligent source. So I'm hoping that, I don't know. I don't know if you guys were thinking that too. I was just hoping that, you know, this would kind of, people would kind of pull that together for the existence of even God. But also, uh, I know there's other things that we won't have time to get into. Uh, I'm talking about, you know, the soul. That's I know we don't have time, and I know that's off topic, but I just kind of want to throw that bait out there, breadcrumbs or whatever you want, if if you want to pick it up. But um, no, it's so good. I just want to say, yeah. I mean, I, I even do touch on those concepts. Okay. The last uh, the last chapter is like very very much on this stuff. Dang. Yeah, the last chapter, <laughs> the first part, and then also of the second part too, yep. because I do talk about the sharing of um i use the term self but you could use the term soul or spirit that unites us um hmm. 
and it unites us to the ground of all reality. So this brings us back to the existence of God too, because yeah, I do make an argument. You need the right kind of material. Mm -hmm. Even though you don't say God, like if if you're reading your work well enough, like, you know, you know what you're talking about. I use the word source. uh, I call it the source substance. And then I begin to describe the attributes it would need to have in order (laughs) for us to emerge. And And it has totally mentality and, um, and, and, and some, kind of point of consciousness in an intelligence as, as yep. you put it yeah. to unify the world. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that's, and that's, um, I think it's really helpful for this conversation. Cause like you said, you, you helpfully, you pound it, but you pound it from different aspects. I, I think helpfully throughout the book where you say in order for us to have the things that we have, the thing, something has to create us that has those same things mm-hmm. and yeah. it can't just have it like at the same level that we do. It has to have it in some support, supreme way so I, I like you don't specifically name the christian god um or talk specifically about his attributes or the image of god um which is some of the stuff that that we we would we would agree on but um you ground it in like first person perspective introspective like what are the things you can know yourself if, even if you believe in god or if you don't like what are the things yeah. you can look at yourself and maybe if you can like as, as we end maybe to talk to those who are who are struggling with this? Who are like mm. like how how can how can I know some of this stuff? Like how can I like how can I look at myself or look at the things around me and say okay I like I have these experiences or I don't have these experiences and how does like how on earth can I like believe in something that's bigger than me, wider than me, and, and connects with everything else? Maybe you can talk to maybe talk to that person versus the the mm. Christian who maybe maybe doesn't struggle with this, some of this stuff. Yeah, no, that's good. I, I think sometimes we take for granted the familiar things, the things yeah. that are the most familiar. You know, you wake up in the morning, you have some thoughts, you you have a feeling of wanting to go back to sleep. And it's so familiar, you know, that you have a feeling, you know, or that there's just you <laughs> in existence, yeah. that you that there's something that can have feelings, that can have thoughts. And one of the things that I really try to do in the book is I try to equip the, the reader to own their journey. Mm-hmm. So that instead of me citing authorities and saying, hey, here's um, what we know. I say, hey, here's some tools that you can use. And I'm going to suggest some things. I'm going to share my journey, but I'm going to invite you to use these tools and and test things for yourself. Check it for yourself. Like you can own this journey. Um, Pay attention to your own thoughts and feelings. Check. I I take nothing for granted. So I don't Mm -hmm. even take for granted that you exist or that you have thoughts or feelings. That's one of the first questions in the book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Or even that you have any access to these things through introspection. Um, And and I talk about, I call this the darkness problem. If, If you turn off the light of inner awareness, then everything goes dark and you can't even be aware of reasons to believe that you're in the dark. That is to say, you can't even be aware in your mind of your own reasons to doubt uh, the, the the power of introspection if you turn off the light of introspection because it's via introspection that you're even aware of the reasons in your mind. Mm. Or if you're reading a scientific article and you're analyzing the article, mm. uh, the article is going to talk about people's observations mm-hmm. and make the argument that you can't even know if you're making an, uh, an observation unless you have some kind of awareness of the experience of making an observation. And that actually involves introspection. And so, you know, if, if somebody's having doubts, if they're having questions, that's great because start there, because that means that there's something that, uh, that means that things aren't completely dark. That means that you're aware at least 
mm-hmm. of doubts and questions. Mm-hmm. Now, how in the world did reality give rise to questions? <laughs> like, <laughs> if there was sand blowing in the wind, you know, would it produce a doubt? Would it produce a question? And that's just a question right there to think about. But what I would want to do is just really to encourage people who would be having questions, would be unsure what to believe, where to turn for truth. It's almost like I want to just kind of invite you to trust yourself a little more. Like you don't have to wait for other people to figure it out. Don't wait for me to tell you what to believe. And if you follow a journey that goes down a path that's different than the path that I've taken, then that's great because you're paying attention to your powers, your tools to know. You're paying attention to what the light of reason seems to be revealing to you. And in the long term, I think you're going to learn a lot more that way. Um, And in the end, I mean, I do think just the very familiar awareness of yourself, I think that's the clue. Just if you're really there, like if you are really real, the self-awareness is it's not awareness of a brain because you can be self-aware without even my kids there. They tell me I'm hungry. They didn't even check their brain to know if they're hungry. They just uh-huh. did it. Okay. So that very familiar self-awareness is so familiar, but it's so significant. And someone's like, if you could just start there and just think about that, like just ponder, like, how can I exist? Just ponder that. I think that will actually help you to get insight and wisdom that will be most relevant to you. Um, just starting with what's clearest to you and following the path of the clear. Where does the clear step lead? Where does it lead? And, you know, my journey is coming from just not knowing, uh, not knowing what to think about. I remember in college, just not knowing what to think about my consciousness, just thinking, you know, maybe if if uh, the brain is complicated enough, then it can produce anything. And it wasn't really until I started taking those courses in the philosophy of mind that everything started to turn around for me. And I started to think, well, okay, it looks like there's something more to consciousness or something more to self-awareness than um, spatial aspects of a brain or even functional aspects of a brain. They're connected. Like I said, the, the functional aspects of the brain are deeply connected to um, our interactions with, with each other in this world. And I'm not claiming or suggesting that um, I feel like I have it all figured out. I mean, I'm still learning. When I was working on this book, I can, there were parts of the book where I, I said, here's my latest thinking on this. Mm-hmm. But then a year later, through my revisions, I was like, actually, that's not my latest thinking on this anymore. And I had to change that line. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, we're all on a journey, you know, and we can learn a lot from each other. Um, and so I guess those are my thoughts about that, you know, really to feel emboldened, to test things out for yourself, you know, check things out, use your tools, use that tool of introspection, use the tool of, of reasoning. And use that scientific method. I have a whole section on the mm-hmm. power of the scientific method and, and utilizing the available empirical data um, that, that you're aware of. If you, that will have, help. if you have the ability to doubt there's a God, prove it proves in of itself there is a God. It at least proves that you have doubts. And then from there, you can make the argument that there would be no doubts if there were no God. You could certainly <clears> make that <throat> argument. That's true. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah, true. Yeah, well, Dr. Rasmussen, thank you so much for coming on, for talking through some of this stuff. And um, I know it can, it can sound like we're going nowhere, but I really do think it it, it is helpful to to think through these things. And 
um, to have you as a guide through some of our thoughts and, and to, uh, to know if we, if we have thoughts and we know that we have thoughts and we know that yeah. we know that we're the ones who are thinking them versus somebody else or observing somebody else. Yeah. And the yeah. fact that we can observe them and the fact that we can think them means that we have them. And if we have them, then can something that doesn't have them create us or form us in any sort of way. And, and I think, like you said, at the end of the book, you said, no, I think you have to have a thing that can think in order to create other things that can think. Yeah. Um, and so we, we got there in a long way, but I, th- I think the journey, like you said, is necessary to get yeah. there. You have to go through some of these things. So thanks you for writing this book and for your research on the mind and helping, helping us think, um, not just think better, but I think to think is really yeah, helpful. Thank so you. thanks for coming on. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening to the episode of our podcast, Guilt, Grace, Gratitude. And if you go to our show notes, as a reminder, there is a link to Patreon and you can find out how to become a bridge builder. Yeah, we've got five different support levels and the levels go from uh, just a a $5 donation to help keep the lights on and and get some equipment all the way up to you guys get to be part of our decision-making process for episodes, for content, for authors, for guests, whoever it may be. And you guys get consistent conversations, maybe even since our episodes, the second that we record them, instead of having to wait for episodes to come out. So look at that, see what you wanna do. As part of that, we have a goal to get about $1,000 a month. That's to cover some costs, get some new equipment, and just hire some people as well. And also, if you guys can rate and review us on iTunes, on Spotify, on any one of your podcasting platforms, This is the number one way besides word of mouth that word gets out about what we're doing. So we hope to see you guys next week.